Social Strategy Podcast, episode 37. Welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, where it's all about making the most of your business with smart tips on what's working now in social media, online business, and good old-fashioned networking. And now your host, who's also known as Ross PR on Twitter, Vernon Ross. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. I wanted to get right into this interview, but I wanted to give you a couple little hints right before we jump in. This next guest is a New York Times bestseller, three different books. She's been on multiple shows, CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, The Today Show, quite a few appearances. You guys are, are definitely going to recognize her once we get into the um, introduction in the next little section. But I just wanted to give you a little teaser. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview. It's not the typical conversation that we have on the show. So I'm really excited to bring this to you and I'll see you guys on the back end. Hey everybody, this is Vernon Ross and welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, bringing you the best in online business, social media, and good old-fashioned networking. And today I've got a great guest. We met at the Financial Bloggers Conference. As you guys know, I went to that back, oh my God, that was already, that was September. It's already a whole month past and I'm back in town and just lucky to have her on the podcast because she's super busy. You guys will know her. Her name's Fanoush Tarabi. She was one of the keynote speakers, and you know, I have to say that I got so much out of the keynote, and I'm gonna post a link to the special stuff that you can get if you attended FinCon because I think it's really valuable if you're talking about launching a book and stuff like that. But a little bit about Fernu, she's you know been in the business in the media business. You guys may know her from the street or from Yahoo and several other programs that she's done, but here recently. She just launched a book, When She Makes More, and it's 10 rules for, see, I was going to try to do that from memory for an issue, I just, <laughs> <laughs> it's 10 rules for breadwinning women, and uh, that's, it's a little controversial. I've been reading through some of the reviews on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and it's, it's a, a hit or miss topic with people. So, for Noosh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vernon. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad we're able to connect now one month, I can't believe it, after right. FinCon. Right. Yeah. So so let me ask you this. Just launched your third book. How did you go about getting published? Because mm -hmm. I get that I get that question a lot. I'm actually working uh, with a good friend of mine. He's he's putting out a book. He has a traditional publisher. And I know his story, but his was, you know, he had this huge social media following, had kind of built up a a large following on Twitter, was in there early connected with a lot of influencers. So him getting a book deal wasn't that hard. It's not with a huge publisher, but your first book, when you sat out and you wrote it, there's an interesting story about how you got, you know, a really, really influential person's name on it. Would you mind going a little bit into that? Sure. So let's see. I've, so I've written my third book, but my very first book called You're So Money, it was my financial guide for young adults. I was about 26, 27 at the time when I was developing the idea. It published in 2008. And um, frankly, at the time, I was a nobody. You know, I mean, as far as a publisher is concerned, I didn't have really a platform. I had a job in the media, which was something, but I wasn't necessarily, um, you know, on the Today Show every day. I was not a household name. I didn't have, back then there was no Twitter. There was a, vaguely a Facebook. <laughs> and so, and there I had- a time when there wasn't a Twitter? I know, right? 
I can't believe it. But uh, yeah, so so in terms of platform, you know, I think I had um, some things going for me, but a lot of things not. And mm-hmm. um, so for me, I think the secrets to publishing that first book um, were a few things. Um, one, I, I networked the heck out of um, my community. And the fact that I was a producer for a TV station at the time, my job involved interviewing a lot of authors, right? Because, um, that's a lot of where we get our expert advice from. We get them from authors and influencers and people in the know. And at the station, at this new station, I was a television producer for the business desk. So I was interviewing a lot of business authors. And then when I got this idea that in my head that I wanted to, add author to my resume and, um, write a book because, you know, I went to school for journalism. I loved writing. It was a passion. I kind of wanted to explore that. I was writing a column for local paper about young money and young adults and money. And I thought, wow, this could be really, you know, could maybe make this into a book. So I first just started reaching out to people who'd been there, done that, who'd published. And I wanted to know how they did it. And so at the end of every interview with like literally every author that came through that new station for six, six to 12 months, um, as I would walk them out to the elevators and thank them for their interview, I'd say, Hey, um, you know, you, as an author, you know, I find you really inspiring. I was, um, actually thinking of publishing my own book and, um, I'd love to, you know, pick your brain at some point or ask you a few questions about the process. And, and in some cases, you know, um, they would stop everything and just give me 30 minutes right there and just give me all this information. And then, um, other times we'd follow up over email. So I was collecting a lot of insights from, from the community of authors and all it really took was this one author, one woman, I don't even remember who it was because, um, apparently she went back to her literary agent and said, I met this woman at, um, I was working at New York one news. Who's interested in writing a book. You should look her up. Her name's Farnish Tarabi. She's, um, you know, young and knows a lot about personal finance and wants to write a book and she doesn't have anyone representing her. So literally I went on a vacation and I came back and there was a voicemail at my desk, uh, phone, telephone saying, hi, I'm such and such agent. I heard through the grapevine that you were interested in writing a book (laughs) and I'd really like to explore this with you. Give me a call. And I was like, what? (laughs) I said, wow, you really put your, you put your energy out there and it comes back. You know, it's, it was totally like me being curious and reaching out and not being afraid to voice my ideas and my goals to, to perfect strangers, frankly, yeah. taking that chance. Sometimes people are afraid to share their ideas. I think that that's, um, a, an, unf- it's a, it's a fear of, you know, being, getting your idea, you know, stolen or mm-hmm. scooped, but I just feel like there are a lot, there's a lot of good in the world and people want to help. So this was an, a classy example of that. So I followed up with this agent we didn't ultimately end up working together, but she got the wheels turning for me. You know, she got me understanding what it takes to write a really good book proposal. And I was having lunch with a friend who was a published author. And I said, I have this book proposal. I'm not really sure I want to work with this particular agent. He goes, oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll pass it on to my agent. And then, you know, two days later, I got a call from that agent saying, I'm interested in per- representing you. 
Now, you had a question about how this book got attached to a very big name, and it yeah. did. Um, so I'm going to jump to that part. So basically, sure, sure. you know, how this book initially came about was just me putting the feelers out and being um, shamelessly asking for help right. <laughs> and um, being, you know, receiving a lot of generous help in return. And at the time, my career was in transition. So I wrote this book proposal while I was working at this news station. And then I actually got a new job working for thestreet.com to help launch their video channel. This was in, again, in like 2006 or 2007. And when my literary agent learned where I was working, he goes, oh, isn't that Jim Cramer's website? Like (laughs) CNBC, Mad Money, Jim Cramer's website. I said, yeah, he was a co-founder and he comes into the office and I have yet to meet him. because it's like, I literally just started and I only know where the bathroom is and where the exit signs are, but um, what's your point? And he goes, well, it would be really, really great if you could get him to endorse your book and maybe, you know, do a foreword. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> like, I just started this job. I cannot go to this guy who's a real big personality. I just started. I, I, I feel intimidated. I don't think it's appropriate. And he said, okay, no problem. I understand. Just, you know, just putting it out there. Um, uh, I have, you know, I, I would just, he's like, I'm just going to tell you that if you literally, if you get him attached to this project, I can sell this book tomorrow and I can get you a very nice advance. Wow. <laughs> so. You didn't even have your red stapler on your desk yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I didn't even know where the supply room was, Vernon. So, okay. So I'm sitting there like, okay, this is, um, this is tempting. And, um, so I said, I said, you know what, um, what do I have to lose? I'm going to, I'm going to approach him and, but I'm going to do it as sincerely and as appropriately as possible. I'm not going to just storm into his office and, you know, wave my book proposal in his face. I'm not going to just, and frankly, I'm not even just going to email him because I haven't yet to meet, I haven't yet met him. Right. I think it would be kind of inappropriate to, to do that. Like Mm -hmm. my first greeting. And then I'm asking him for a huge favor. So I approached my editor-in-chief, who was kind of my go-between, between me and Jim Cramer. And um, I think this was like my third week at work. And, um, and I said, look, I have this book that I'm working on, and I would love to introduce this idea to you and also to Jim, because ultimately when this book gets published, I want to be able to do a lot of media around it. And I think, you know, this could be really great for everybody, frankly, like it could be great for the company because everywhere I go and do media, I'll be recognized as Farnoosh from the street.com. And it's directed towards millennials. And I know the company is really care, you know, uh, dedicated to the millennial audience. So I tried to really per- make the case that this, I'm trying to be really, really thoughtful and, and excited for everybody about this. And so my editor-in-chief said, sure, I'll pass it along to Jim. Nice. And, and I said, okay, no problem. And this was like, I don't know, August, September. Um, September rolls around. October rolls around. <laughs> um, Thanksgiving rolls around. And I don't, I don't hear anything. And I guess I should have followed up before Thanksgiving. But I was so – I was just in my head thinking, like, he hated it. And I better – I don't even want to know. Like, I don't even go there. But then after Thanksgiving, my editor-in-chief came to me, actually, and he said, by the way, Jim read your proposal. He thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread. Holy crap. And he wants to help you. He says he says he'll do anything. And I was like, <laughs> awesome. what? I mean, talk about, 
I don't even know what, what you call that. What do you call that, Vernon? You call that like just um, you, you know that's playing. That's that's <laughs> that's some of that. But it's having enough confidence in what you've done and the work that you've actually put in. Because I mean, I think it needs to be said that if it was a crap book, he wouldn't have been willing to put his name behind it. Mm-hmm. So you did the work. And so often on this podcast, when I talk to you know, a lot of the people that I interview and when I'm out talking to people, one of the books I recommend that everyone reads is Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art because it talks so much about doing the work. You actually did the work beforehand and then you did all the groundwork. You talked to authors for a year. You put it in, you put the work in and you put out there what you wanted to do. Then you wrote your, you wrote your book and you found out what you needed to do. And when an opportunity presented itself, you were afraid, but you went ahead and took the chance anyway, but you did it in a way that would benefit the person that you're approaching or at least the benefit that you could offer. Because I think so often it's hard for people to understand the benefit that they have if they're not famous, if they don't have, you know, a huge line of credentials behind their name, or if they're just a nobody that's just starting in a newsroom and helping to do video on, you know, produce a video show. And you've got a major talent right there. You did still have something to offer it would be a long-term benefit for everyone, but you had something to offer. And on top of that, your work was really good. So I think that's what it is. Well, thank you. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, thank, thank, thanks for saying that. I mean, I think what I learned from that experience was that you have to make it a win-win. You know, when you ask for help, you should ask for help. Don't be afraid to do it. But, you know, always think about the other person and, and yeah, be strategic about it. You have, you want to think about and, and, yeah, I had nothing to offer except the, 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 you know, the promise that this book was going to do well and it was going to represent the company well. Mm-hmm. And, and to, you know, they, they had that faith in me, thankfully. And, um, so Jim Cramer, I, I, I credit him for really launching, frankly, you know, the rest of my career because, um, that book really set off a whirlwind of, of experiences and different, um, revenue streams and exposures and lots of meeting cool people and, and then another book and a third book. So I'm forever indebted to him and, and he knows it. And actually he lives in Brooklyn now where I live. Oh, Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. He's, um, he's opened a restaurant in town. He's like totally invested in, uh, in this great city of Brooklyn. Um, so that was an amazing chapter in my career book. He wrote the introduction. He wrote the forward. I'm sorry. He wrote the forward and which was sort of the introduction. And then he wrote, um, the investing chapter, you know, how to invest when you're a young millennial and you have (laughs) no money. Yeah, that is amazing. So now the reason I wanted you to kind of go into that is because a lot of the times with authors, especially authors that are as notable as you are. Okay, it's your third book. And they go, oh, great. It's their third book. Sure, go ahead, plug their book. We'll hear, you know, yada, yada, yada. They're great. They've already got three books written. How am I going to ever get to that point? Well, there are a lot of journalists out there. And not all of them are as notable or have as recognizable as a name as you. What do you think it is that set you apart from, say, other journalists that were in similar situations that you're in? Mm Mm-hmm. What did, what did you do to, to put yourself and set yourself apart to actually be the person that's on the Today Show and Fox and all of that stuff like that? I think what differentiated me and still is um, I didn't pigeonhole myself 
in, in the sense that I, I wasn't this one trick pony, you know, I wasn't just a writer. I wasn't just a, a TV person. I wasn't just someone who was blogging. I wasn't just somebody who was on the radio. I tried to do everything. Like for example, when I pitched myself to the media, I put myself in like the producer's shoes in the person who's you know going to be working with me, who is going to put me on their program. I have, I want to anticipate them and think about what their needs are and put everything that they need on a silver platter so that their job is easy and their job is done. Basically all they have to do is, you know, tell me what time to be there. Right. And so I'm an extremely hard worker. Not that no one in your listen to the show is not a hard worker, but in the sense that I think of not only what I need to do, but what others need to do and do that for them. <laughs> well, I think that makes a difference is that, yeah. you know, a lot of people, they're not hard workers. I mean, you, you know, when you, when you come down to it, people, they, they work hard on their stuff, but they, right. it's, it's the rare person that will work hard on their stuff and even harder on the stuff for the other people that they're going to be working with to make it seamless for them. Because, it, you know, it's, it's funny. I, um, we took a trip to New York a couple of years ago. Actually, it's about three, maybe almost four years ago now. And a reporter from Crane's Business Weekly threw a, a story out on Harrow about travel. And I'm like, oh, man, that, that'd be interesting to uh, get featured in a thing in Crane's Business Weekly. I'll tell her about the wife and all the coupon stuff and Groupon and travel credits because we, we wanted mm -hmm. to take my daughter to Paris for her senior graduation trip because they were going you know and i'm like ah, it's that's too much money to spend with the school let's just all go as a family and i'm sure it'll be a lot cheaper we so we found a really really cheap way to go to new york stay there for almost a week right you know in manhattan right near times square just awesome new york trip i mean we were just like right up the street from times square Mm -hmm. I forget the name of the hotel we stayed in, but uh, Cicely Tyson actually was in our hotel when we missed her. Oh, man. Yeah, the kids the kids saw her, had no idea who she was. But they were like, it was some famous lady that we think oh. we saw in a Tyler Perry movie. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then we found out it was Cicely Tyson. Oh, my gosh. But um, we got featured on the cover of Crane's Business Weekly because when I responded to the pitch, I actually just wrote out everything. I told her how much it cost, the yeah. planning that went into it. Everything and anything I thought that she would need to feature us as in the story. I had no idea it was going to be the cover. I had no idea we were going to be doing a photo shoot and seeing all these different sites in New York City because I'd put the extra effort in. And I didn't know if it was the right thing to do. I'm like, oh, this is going to be too long because I always hear that pitches shouldn't be long and they should be short. Two or three sentences and send it in and they'll pick your thing. But I, I just I know better from pitching other stories that do a little extra, give them pretty much write the article or whatever it is for them. And you, you may get picked if it's good enough. You didn't think you were going to be picked. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to be picked because you know, sometimes you think, well, this may not be good enough. Right. But if you put in the extra work, a lot of the mm -hmm. times it is. And it sounds like that's what you do. So is that your, is that your approach? That's kind of my, yeah, general? it's kind of my MO. I, because I've been on the other side, you know, I've been the producer, I've been the writer at the magazine or the, or the editor, and I've been the, um, you know, the one behind the camera. I know what is needed. And so I think that's why people like working with me because I've, I've been, I, I, you know, my, I went to Columbia and I studied broadcast journalism and you have to learn everything. And I went, and when I worked at New York one news, you had to do everything yourself from start to finish. You were your own 
station bureau for all intents and purposes. You were the, you were booking the guests. Oh you were God. you were shooting the video. You were writing the scripts. You were in, you were doing your own stand-ups. That was the most challenging part: is getting the camera <laughs> to focus <laughs> on you when you're and you have no camera person. Um, luckily, I was never sent out to do any kind of live like blazing fires or anything. I was it was always like in a nice boutique or something or, oh, you know, that's funny. on well, the street. That's so, you know, ha- take, take that note YouTubers that when you're setting up your, uh, your yeah. own camera, you don't have a camera person. That's, Hey, that's how the news works. Yeah. Thank God for <laughs> viewfinders that flip, like, that was, right. you know, how funny. but, um, that was all necessary for me to go through because I have a 360 comprehension of what it takes to, um, put your, you know, be out there successfully in the media, mm-hmm. um, from all as from all angles and aspects. Right. And I, I kind of went down that road because I have so many people asking me about, you know, how do you break into media? How do you get into a newsroom? I, I run across a lot of journalism students and they're like, I don't know what to do. And so you, you work hard and you learn every aspect of your craft so that you can basically be the absolute best person you can be. And then the opportunities come. Absolutely. When I graduated from journalism school, there were two roads that I could have taken. And generally speaking, if I in in the pursuit of broadcast journalism, in the pursuit of working in a newsroom, one was go to Bumblebee, Kentucky, and work <laughs> for Station three hundred seventy four as the assistant, you know, reporter, uh, making eight dollars an hour and side, you know, and like part-timing at, um, Applebee's. So that, that, and like lots of phenomenal reporters and anchors at network level did that and, and still do that. So I'm not saying like that was not a viable possibility. Right, I'm just saying like, you, you weren't interested in the, flare. I wasn't interested in moving. <laughs> I wasn't, this wasn't like no, this was not my calling. I didn't spend like $40,000 on a graduate degree to go then make, you know, $8 an hour. Um, instead I was like, I want to stay in New York. That was my priority. Um, I'm not going to obviously start fresh out of grad school, becoming like the channel four or five o'clock anchor woman, mm-hmm. let alone even just, you know, you know, the market was difficult back then. And so I was, you know, I had low expectations, but I knew I wanted to be in New York. And so for me, really, it was important to just get really good, rich experience as a reporter. And whether that was on camera or off camera, I knew that I had the on camera skills, but what I really needed more of was the reporting acumen and the sharp kind of awareness of business and personal finance and stuff like that, that was going to ultimately get like, help me become a really well-rounded journalist. So rather than apply for all these, you know, broadcast media jobs, not that there were even any in New York, I applied to be a, um, a writer for money magazine or rather like more like a glorified intern (laughs) for money magazine (laughs) where I was, um, assisting all the writers, getting a couple of stories in the magazine, but really my job was to report and fact check. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, being there was a great, uh, education, you know, learning all about personal finance from the pros at the best personal finance magazine in New York with a great brand name that would carry well on my resume. And it was about, and while I was there, you know, they, they told everybody on staff, including the lowly interns like me, Hey, if you're interested in um, representing the magazine in the media on television, we can train you and 
we'll put you out there. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So this was the time when nobody wanted to be on television. You know, like a lot of print people are scared of TV. Or it's just not really their personality. They don't mm-hmm. care for it. Whatever. I did. I was really excited about this opportunity. So I volunteered. And at one day they were like, okay, we need someone to go on CNN and talk about our cover issue of best place, cities to live in or best towns to live in. And um, so at the ripe age of 22, 23, I was thrown on CNN. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and um, and that was my break. Honestly, that was the first thing that went on my reel. And when I was, um, you know, ultimately putting together a professional reel to make the jump all the way to broadcast, it, it was something that I that I use. And, and along the way, I was doing local stuff like Fox and NBC. And um, so you never know. Like, you know, I went sort of, I went to print knowing that ultimately I wanted to do broadcast, but I went to print to get the education, to get really the skills and the understanding of the, of the market that I was covering. Um, and then uh, along the way I got some media training cause it was something that they were offering that I didn't mm-hmm. even know. And then made the transition to New York one. They were looking for a business producer, not on camera, but somebody who could produce the business news, cover the markets, do evergreen feature stories about money and business and the job market. And so I was really unqualified for this job to the extent (laughs) that they wanted someone to be qualified. And I think that we learn now about women having this confidence gap, you know, whereas in, for example, in Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg cites a survey, a study rather, that finds that when men apply for jobs, as long as they feel like they have, they they qualify for 60% of the job requirements, mm-hmm. they'll apply. Yes. Women feel like they have to have every single one of those bullet points met before applying. And when I got this, you know, job description for business producer, I probably fulfill, I had like 50% of the job requirements under my belt. They wanted somebody with like five to seven years of experience. I, as I just said, was you know, like a junior, <laughs> like a senior intern Right. At, at New York one. But, you know, I had studied finance in college. I had studied business journalism at Columbia. I was working at money magazine. So I knew they, they, they hired me ultimately because I had the knowledge base. Right. And they're like, well, the, the technical stuff we can teach you, you know, and they, and of course I did. And it was a really steep uphill climb. I don't, not going to lie. I was there many nights until one in the morning learning how to use ENPS and how to cut videos and use cameras. But I knew that this was my stepping stone into a bigger career in in broadcast because it was the kind of newsroom that really encouraged everybody for at all levels to experiment with other aspects of the broadcast spectrum. So if you were a a writer, they, you know, it it was not uncommon for a writer to then end up as an anchor five years later, because that was what they wanted to do. And and it was the kind of, um, you know, environment that, that supported it. Right. It was was non-union too. So I could like take out a camera whenever I wanted. Right. Right. Exactly. That's important in broadcast. Yeah. So now moving, moving forward, that was about 12 years ago, right? Um, that was 2003. So, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Yeah. That was like 11, 12 years ago. I'm so old. (laughs) (laughs) so no you're you're young so we we go from basically um glorified intern Mm -hmm. to when she earns more 
-hmm. Tell me about that. Tell me about the book. How did you come up with it? And some of the opinions that you have in the book and and how we should process that whole title, because I I really I'm interested in it. And I've gotten I've gotten a chance to read a little bit of it. I haven't finished it yet because I'm reading like five books right now. And but it's it's a it's a good book. And that title and the premise behind the title is what I think gets more people than anything else. Mm -hmm. So go go a little bit into that because I know you're running short on time and I want to give some justice to your book. Oh, thanks. Well, I'll I'll try not to um, keep I'll try to keep this short. So when she makes more was my third book and and it really was born out of my own necessity to find solutions and strategies to uh, thrive in my marriage, in my career, and in my finances, and as a mom, as the breadwinner in my marriage. I think that um, at the time when I came up with the idea for the book, it was no secret that women were outpacing men, their husbands rather, in their marriages. I think Pew had just done a study and it had gone viral about how there are now 40% 40 of women in this country are the head of household. Um, A lot of those women are single moms, um, which is a completely different circumstance than what my book is about. But um, the the reality of a woman making more than her husband is, is just something that's becoming more and more real. Why do you think that is? Okay, so there's a few reasons behind it. Um, one is that uh, – no, I mean – and so I should just say that now, right now, you've got 24% of marriages in this country where she makes more. That compares to just 4% in the 1960s. So what happened over those, you know, 50 years, um, 40, 50 years, basically more women are going to college than men, more women are entering careers and fields where there are growing jobs. Um, at the same time, a lot of male dominant industries are contracting. And so a lot of this, a lot of this trend kind of, um, sped up, I would say during the recession. Mm-hmm where you had a lot of men losing their jobs disproportionately to women. I think, you know, we called the recession the man session for those reasons. And so a lot of women inadvert like some they sort of inherited the role of breadwinner since the recession and they never went back. Um so it's, you know, women are out earning and out learning men and if you look specifically at women under the age of 30 in this country, um, in me- major metropolitan cities like New York, Boston, LA, their uh, average income is higher than, than than men. And again, I think it's because they have the they have the degrees, they have um, they're entering industries that you know pay well and have you know jobs. And I think, frankly, right now, and I, I this is just my perspective. There's no data behind this, but I think that because it, it's very personal, you know, in my 20s and early 30s, I really kicked. I, I worked really hard because I had this mantra of wanting it all. Right, I want to have it all, and what that made me do, for better or for worse, was work extremely hard in my 20s and 30s, kind of like head down, bust my butt, mm-hmm. and. So that, in my mind, it was so that when I turned 30 or whatever, 40, in that age range, I could, you know, focus on family a little bit and have and be able to call the shots because perhaps all through my 20s and early 30s, I had earned some, in my mind, you know, maybe I'd earned some um, flexibility, some, um, I'd, uh, 
some entitlement to maybe, you know, calling more of the shots within my career and that it has worked out for me. You know, I think working really hard in my twenties, shifting to a self-employed lifestyle, but not scaling down the work, actually doing more and more work, but on my own terms now as a mother, um, while I've never, never been busier than before, at the same time, I have a lot of flexibility and Mm -hmm. I've earned that. And, um, I think, so men necessarily don't have that sense of urgency in their twenties. You know, um, I, I hear it from a lot of men and women. Like when you talk to a woman about her priorities in her twenties, and this is not even just me talking now, this is actually Pew that's done studies about what men and women, young men and women, what their ambitions are when they're young. And for women, a priority is career. More women say career is a priority than men say it's a priority in their twenties. Yeah. That's bro time in your, in your twenties. Yeah. <laughs> Cause men, men can have kids whenever, um, frankly, cause they're not the ones, <laughs> but women have a biological clock. And I do think that that is part of why we see a lot of younger women really, they're racing against the clock to kind of get all their financial ducks in a row, their career ducks in a row so that they can focus on if they want, you know, being a wife and a mom, not to say they're going to quit their jobs, but that they have, you know, that, that, that it's, it's a more viable option because, you know, kids cost money and weddings cost money. Oh yeah. That's interesting. It's, um, it's interesting that you, um, (laughs) that you went through it like that. That's, um, well, and so, yeah, a lot of people ask me like, so why does it matter that a woman makes more? Why did you write this book? You know? Uh, and I said, because there are a lot of no one prepares a woman to be the breadwinner mm-hmm. in her marriage. And I'm sorry, it's a big responsibility. And women, unlike men, generally speaking, you know, we don't relinquish any other responsibilities just because we're breadwinners, you know, just, and, and whereas traditionally when the guy is the breadwinner, you know, his job is number one. He's not also like coming home and making a six course meal. He's not also, you know, assigning, you know, calling, um, play dates. He's not also, you know, making the grocery list. He's not not also running around the house with a Windex in his hand, but women, we do do not relinquish all those other responsibilities and those duties that we think we need to do to keep our sort of womanly status and housewifery status. It's really mental. And as a result, a lot of breadwinning women are overworked. They're resentful. So that's the women. And then there's men who are not the breadwinners in the relationship that admit, you know, this is like really rocking me. This is really kind of disturbing me because I don't know what my purpose is now in the marriage Mm -hmm. because I was groomed and raised and hardwired to provide. And for men provide traditionally is meant to provide with money and finances. And if if that does not, is not, not required of them, they can really have an identity crisis. So clearly there's like a unique set of complexities when something as seemingly innocuous as a woman making more, you know, happens. So I think that's why I wanted to write the book. For me, I, I was struggling with, you know, a lot of um, judgment, frankly, from family who were like, you make more than your husband. How's that going to work out? Right. I mean, you want to have kids, right? And you want to spend time with these kids. They see how hard I work and they see, you know, that they, they worried that my, frankly, my mom, frankly, was worried that I was going to have a really hard life mm-hmm. because I wouldn't be able to enjoy yeah, you'll never be happy. being a mom. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, again, studies show that society still expects men to be providing financially 
Very true. Not women. So there's all these other forces at play. Even if you're content in your marriage with your the way you've designed your you know financial life together, mm -hmm. um, your neighbors are going to snicker. The, your coworkers aren't going to get it. You know, and then society at large is maybe not going to be you know totally accepting. And while it's easy to be like, well, who cares? Yeah, well, that's something to that's a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the social pressures can get to you. For sure. Yeah, that's that is that is interesting. So after after going through all of that, how do, how do you deal with that in your marriage? I mean, how did how did you come to the point where you guys are okay with it, or is it still a struggle? You know, throughout the marriage, dealing with that. We're we're in a good place, and you know, I don't want to make it seem like we were like close to divorce or anything like that, or we, we had a serious problem, but there was enough there that it really made me kind of not feel so happy about being a breadwinner, yeah. you know? And, and that's, and, and that was really my aha moment where I was like, Hey, wait a minute. Why isn't anyone high-fiving me? Why does this feel like such a burden where I feel like I've done everything I was supposed to do that my parents encouraged me to do that society encouraged me to do. I'm having it all. <laughs> yeah. But no one's like, where's my, where's my champagne? Right, right. It's all bad news. And so I am fortunate, first of all, to have a husband who is super confident in himself and proud of me and, and appreciative, frankly, too, of the, you know, the fruits of my labor for us that that makes my life and my conscience so much better because of it. If I had a husband who I was always like worried that I was hurting his masculinity or that mm -hmm. he was feeling less than, I think that it would, it would not work. And, you know, we'd have to have some serious, you know, <laughs> right. intervention. Um, and, and, and that, that happens a lot in marriage, I think. So I'm lucky in that. I, and I'm, I'm proud that I was able to, you know, identify something like that in, in a man and, and be attracted to it and go for it. Because sometimes women, you know, they want the guy that's going to take care of them. And sometimes they think he has to make a lot of money or he has to have a secure job. But if you're an ambitious woman who, who's got her own life together and is independent, you should still go after a guy that's going to take care of you, but in a whole other way. Mm -hmm. You know, he takes care of me emotionally and he takes care of me um, by supporting my ideas and and being a great father and, um, you know, helping me solve problems. And that for me is such a, is, is like where, you know, I feel like I've found my equal. And, um, but that said, you know, we, um, in the beginning of our, of our marriage, when we were kind of starting to make financial decisions together and there was this income disparity and I was making more, I, I sensed that he didn't have the confidence to say to me things like, Hey, let's go on this trip. Um, right. or let's go to this hotel or, um, when we were planning our wedding, he was more like following my lead, which I think a lot of guys do anyway, because no guys really like to get into uh, yeah. the details of wedding planning. <laughs> but I'll speak for myself. Yes. yes. And I'm so there was that going on, too. But I but I do also feel like he was holding back because, you know, a lot of the wedding was being financed, you know, through my bank account. Um, he paid for a lot, too. But, you know, right. You know, he felt awkward. So I literally well, I just said to I him one day and I said, you know, I and, and for me, like, I didn't want all this pressure to make all the financial decisions. And so I stopped one day and I said to him, you know, I really want you to feel like my money is our money. And if I'm not doing a good job of conveying that to you, then I'm really sorry. But, you know, I don't like making these decisions in isolation. 
mm-hmm. whether it was a decision about, you know, buying property together or a decision about acquiring um, life insurance or setting up an appointment with our financial advisor. Like I felt that a lot of it was, I was steering that ship and in a lot, in all relationships, there is typically one person who is sort of like the CFO and that's fine, but there needs to be communication. There needs to be a back and forth. And we weren't having that. And I think cause it was insecurity in his part, but probably me also in the beginning, just being like, Oh, I'll just take care of it. But it hits you (laughs) at some point it, it becomes a problem because if I ever made a mistake, it was all on me. And I didn't want, I told him, I'm like, I don't want that pressure. (laughs) If we're going to go down and we're going to go down together. Um, if I make a bad investment, if I like buy Apple at whatever, and we lose all of our house, you know, well, (laughs) I never do that, but like, these are the kind we need to talk about everything. So, um, that was one thing and we're much better at that. So now we have a financial advisor. We've, um, I talk in the book about, you know, giving his money meaning and what that means. Um, and so we have leveled the financial playing field, so to speak. And I talk about that in the book. As for my mother um, and her opinions, um, you know, it's time heals. Right. <laughs> and also lear- seeing our marriage and, you know, how we are together, I think, um, has further has been further evidence to her that, you know, oh, a marriage like this can actually work. And, you now, know. Now, let me ask you this. Are you first generation uh, Iranian-American or... Yes. Okay. So she's very traditional. So this is really a big problem. Yeah. But even (laughs) I would say not even as big of a problem as some other first generation families, because my mom moved here when she was 19. Okay. So so she's been in America. Yeah. Okay. But you know, that said, she's had a very, um, she's been mostly in contact with people within our culture, even when she's been here. So I think that she still has sort of in her head, it's ironic, right? She raised me to be this like independent woman, but <laughs> never ever expected that I would make more than my husband right. and still wanted me to find like the quote unquote Prince Charming guy who was going to come and, you know, rescue me. And I think that she, in her life, she associated working with struggle and money with struggle. So I assumed that in, in her daughter's life, if her daughter is like always working, that she couldn't possibly be happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, we, I, I, get it. I get it. That's, that's funny. And, and so I don't fault her for thinking like that because I think it was, it was her truth and it was her experience and it, she ultimately wants me to be happy. And we just had to really talk it out a lot. Right. Well, you know, I think your book is going to do a lot to help a to help a lot of people at least get a context around what it means when when she earns more. Because it happens and it happens I think number one, I think it's because women are more patient than men and we tend to pursue things that may not necessarily be straight towards the career. We may do more fun stuff in our twenties. You know, we'll screw around and go here, go travel, go do this, go do that. At least some guys. Mm-hmm. And then when you get serious about the career in your thirties, the women are already past you. They're well into their careers. You're just starting and you may catch them, but then again, you may not. Mm-hmm. I think, I think your book help ident- helps identify that pretty well. Thank you. And like you said, if you're not a breadwinner now, it could happen when, you know, you least expect it. And it's good to just kind of know what's ahead perhaps. And um, how to still thrive even when your marriage, you know, could take a turn in this, you know, with this financial flip. Right. Right. Well, for this is, this has been an amazing conversation. I, uh, we could go on for a while, but I know that you've got a little one that's a little under the weather. So I'm yes. sensitive to that. Thank you. I've, I've, I've been there. Um, 
we'll we'll talk later. I'll have to I'll I'll announce it on the podcast and the in the post stuff that I'll talk about with you later. We'll and we'll talk again. I'm sure I'll have to have you. Oh yeah, sure. I'll I'll um I'd love to, you know, let you know where I am in the whole podcast process and, um, I'm trying to do execute like really carefully mm-hmm. as opposed to like rushing to market because I don't think that's gonna. <laughs> be the best way to do it even though i'm really eager i'm really i'm really impatient but so give us um, a little preview what's your podcast going to be about or have you decided so yeah well it's a work in progress um it could change tomorrow but i've i've been sitting on this idea for a while now so i'm pretty sure it's going to be what it is um it's called so money with Mm -hmm. farnoosh tarabi and it's candid conversations to help you live a richer happier life and the idea is thanks so it's a it's going to be every day I decided that is going to be the consistency, which is kind of why I'm like freaking out because I realized like if I'm going to do this, I'm really going to do this five days a week. It's going to be me talking to, um, a superstar, someone, I mean, my first guest so far that I've booked is Tony Robbins. I hate you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we all, all us podcasters hate you so much right now, but that is so awesome. No, but you know what? It's it's all gonna be good because we're all gonna know each other, and I'm gonna help everybody as much as I can. Because I I'm I mean I I'm everyone know, who knows me knows that I just I make connections, and maybe they don't work out, but at least I can do is like introduce <laughs> you to someone. Um, That's awesome. So Tony Robbins, James Altucher, James is a friend. James Altucher. I've worked in media, right? So I just know oh. a lot of like authors and TV people, and you know so. While I can't promise them these people right now anything in the in the in the beginning, like I'm trying to just get people who are going to be kind and come on my show for the first month. <laughs> so I'm not. I can't say like this show is downloaded a million times a month. No, it's probably downloaded seven times in the last hour. But uh, it's conversations with people who have influence and who people who've made have successful careers in in you know not just in my business, but you know whatever vertical, mm-hmm. um, and talking openly about their money philosophies, what they did when they first got their, you know, th- their first big financial break, the biggest lesson they learned as a kid about money. Um, and then we'll do like, you know, so it's 30 minutes and it's a pretty much a standard Q and a with some flexibility for, you know, going off topic. And I want to do that cause it'll keep it fresh for the listeners every time. And, um, weekends, I'm going to answer viewers, listeners questions. So all week I'm teasing you to go to the podcast website, log in, send me your question. And then I will answer as many as I can that weekend in two episodes. That's the idea right now. And that's a really uh, good idea. It's, and it's well, it's well thought out and you've got an amazing, uh, couple of guests for your first lineup. So don't worry about that. You'll, uh, (laughs) you'll be right at the top and new and noteworthy. I hope so. That's the goal, right? Marketing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Marketing. Um, but let me know how I can help you. I mean, I um, I I don't know everybody, but I, I can certainly figure out how to you know help people make those connections. If you know, if I can, I'll, I will. I know that Tony's coming out with a book. So. Oh, he's got a new book coming out. Yeah. So he it's time it, the timing as well. Like I don't think I could have gotten him last year, but right. he's um and his publicist 
was my publicist for my book. So that, and so. Okay. So that's called serendipity. Yeah. (laughs) That was just random. No, no, that was like me milking my publicist for every dollar that I gave her. Um, and finally being like, but actually Tony is really generous guy. Like he gave me a quote for my book. Um, never having met me. I, so I gave him one. I was like, why does he want one from me? But you know, (laughs) that's awesome. It's like, okay. Um, and he's coming out with a book. So he's in, he's going to be in like the press mode mm-hmm. and probably, you know, open to doing a lot of interviews. Well, yeah, which is of course, is of course the best time to get people. Right. When they're promoting something. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think of it, I don't know if you get this show in your, in your town, it's called Talk Stoop. No. It's this New York based show. It's in all the taxi cabs here and it's starting to air on USA, I think USA Network, but it's basically this woman who sits on her, her stoop in Brooklyn and interviews celebrities. And it's these little clips. And I think it airs in you know middle of the night, but they air the clips in taxi cabs. And um, I thought, you know, this is kind of like what I want to do. I want to interview these same people, but about money. Because it's something that we never hear from them, you know. And I don't care to know, like, what's in their Schwab account, because they would never even tell me. But mm-hmm. that's irrelevant. Like, I want to know what their mindset is about money. Ultimately, you want a listener who's willing to invest in their self-development. And, you know, this podcast is not about how to save on gas or how to clip coupons. It's about how to think more sort of sophisticatedly about money and more, um, you know, get your, take your finances from good to great. Right. Yeah. You know, most of your finance troubles have to do with your mindset and how you view, view the world. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thanks. I, um, you're ready to launch now. I said it. It's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle, you know. It's just, uh, uh, I'm sure someone who's been, who's like you might be look, th- like listening to me being like, relax. Yeah. You know, you don't need to overthink everything, but. Um, overthink nothing. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like I, I want to do this right because I really want to make this a big part of my career in the new year and, for, and going forward. And I want to be, I just, you know, I want to go forward with, um, integrity and, and not regret regarding like, Oh, I hate my cover art or, Oh my God, my, 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 my intro sucks. You know, I just want to, well, we can talk about some of that stuff offline because I I can help you with any of that stuff. And I've got good people and good resources that can. Oh, good. Well, thanks so much, Vernon. I really appreciate appreciate you coming on. Thanks for cheering me on at FinCon and introducing yourself. And uh, let me know how I can help you. I'm here. (laughs) I appreciate it. I really do. Hey, guys, that was awesome. I had so much fun talking to Farnoosh. There was so much information in that episode. So what I would like for you to do is go back, listen to it again. But some of the things that we talked about is the importance of doing the work, you know, like Stephen Pressfield talks about in the war of art. And I've referenced that in several podcast episodes. So if you have not read it by now, shame on you, go out and get it and let me know that you got it. And I'll do something special for you. If you go out and read the book, I don't get anything from it. Uh, No Amazon affiliates allowed in Missouri, so I get absolutely nothing for Amazon links. But just go out and read this book. It is a really good book, and it really helps with helping you to focus on the things that need to be done. But one of the things that was key, and I think that is key to Farnoosh's success, is that she does the work, and she knows her craft. And, you know, she knows her, her entire way around a newsroom, and although this wasn't 
you know, like a career episode on how to get into network news, I think it's really valuable for, you know, bloggers, podcasters, anyone that's listening to the show that wants to have the opportunity to work with the media. Because what Farnoosh just provided was a real good look inside how you actually get booked on shows. And I don't know if you guys caught it, but a lot of it is, you know, you do the the pitch. You go ahead, you pitch yourself, but you also do all of the other back-end work that that person may have to do. So if you're pitching an article, actually write the article and send it to them and go, hey, here's the article that I wrote for this story that I want to pitch. Because I know some of you guys are out there pitching the media for your stories, for your for your blog posts, for your show ideas. And this is a really good way and some very valuable insight into exactly how to do that. I mean, it's it's so valuable. So go definitely go back and listen to that part. And you also have to, you know, you have to make those declarations of what you want. When you put it out there and you let people know what you're pursuing and people will go out and they will start talking about you to other people that can help move you forward in your process. Like the story where Farnoosh was telling about the first literary agent that contacted her taught her so much about the publishing process and all all sorts of valuable information came from that relationship even though she didn't ultimately end up working with her she still learned what she needed and about the process and then ended up working with a very successful literary agent who just happens to be now is this serendipity or what tony robbins literary agent who now is going to be on her show when she launches her podcast in the new year which of course she talked about on the show in in detail you got a little back-end insight into the thought process that goes into launching a successful podcast so there was so much in this episode definitely you could miss it if you weren't paying attention so go back listen to it listen to the last 10 minutes if you want to know about the thought process that goes into a successful podcast and how to launch a successful podcast brand because it is right there it's just amazing as you guys can tell you know we we hit it off pretty well at fincon the financial bloggers conference back in september and this is what networking is about it's about connecting with people who are like-minded that you can provide some value for and, you know, hopefully help them achieve the things that they want to achieve with not any expectation of getting anything back. You know, of course, it'd be great for Farnoosh to hook me up with people that I want to meet, but that's not necessary. I just want to help her because she's good at what she does. She loves to give and she's very generous. So make sure you reach out to Farnoosh. All of her information is on the site in the show notes. And there is a click to tweet box right on the site where you can go out there and click the tweet that you should not be afraid to shamelessly ask for help. You have to ask for help when you need it. That's the only way you're going to get it. And there's no shame in that game. All right, guys, I'm going to go ahead, wrap it up, and I will see you in the next episode. Die.